Hey, everybody, and uh, welcome back to the Unacceptable Behavior Podcast. Uh, my name is Braylon, Braylon A., Braylon Andrzejewski, and I am a candidate for ASECT Sex Educator Certification. Um, that's what I am right now. I am a sex educator. And long before sex education, I had a variety of goals and a even wider variety of issues just with figuring out who I was. Um, to give you an idea, I changed my major nine times in college, couldn't figure it out, didn't know what I wanted to do. <laughs> um, and then I moved to Cleveland. I spent several years performing what, what basically is full-time and that was after I had changed my mind from what my dream had been for approximately 10 years. Um, I was a kid who, know what, who knew what they wanted to do really early on. And uh, my first dream ever was that I wanted to create a theater school. And this is hard for me to talk about. Um, but I was a theater school student. I was in a private tuition-based after-school program that was recommended to my family by an extended family, um, or really recommended to my mom, and she put my brother and I into the program. And my mom was a natural talent. She was very creative. She was a seamstress and a scrapbooker. And I mean, uh, she, she was an absolute creative talent. And I uh, was a young singer and a theatrical kid. So naturally, we just nested in to this theater school um, really quickly, really easily. And we found ourselves at home. So in my most formative years, I was not in school learning to socialize with my peers, I was training to be a professional actor, musical theater performer. And it was an awesome place to be if you wanted a uh, career as a professional, you know, child actor, essentially. I mean, the production quality over there was absolutely stunning. You wouldn't believe how good the shows were for, for being a bunch of little kids. And the environment when I was young, it was just like absolutely delicious. The first day of class, uh, we were told your body is safe here, your stuff is safe here, and your feelings are safe here. Like there, it was a no bullying policy. Um, the school was breeding professional New York City performers. This was advertised from the beginning. Um, but the weird thing about it is that they never preached fame so it didn't have this vibe of like, oh, you're, you're a famous child actor and you're going to be a big star. It was never like that. Um, they were always very honest that theater was a really harsh space, that it was a really competitive space. And uh, they told us that if you choose to pursue a career in the field, you're probably going to be a starving artist. And I have plenty to say about starving artists, but um, not in the beginning. In the beginning, everything was really, really good. And in fact, I always cite the story that I faced a horrible tragedy early in life when I was seven years old. And um, I had just started the program at that time. I was in first or second grade. And then on the day of 
that tragedy, which I don't need to go into details of, um, I begged my mom to let me go to class because I felt safe and I felt a sense of belonging that I didn't have anywhere else because I was homeschooled and my brothers were eight and 16 years older than me. So that pretty much like qualifies me as an only child on top of everything else. Um, yeah. And overall, I just, I really don't want to talk shit on my experience because parts of it were so beautiful and, um, pretty much unparalleled to anything else. It was just, it was a, it was a really beautiful experience, but I feel strongly now as an adult, as I look back on those experiences, that there needs to be some accountability for theater professionals who teach children. Um, because acting training is fucked up and theater spaces are fucked up and there is little to no accountability within theater communities because, and I say this as a theater person, we believe that what we're doing is so big and important that we don't feel the need to take accountability for the things that we haven't done well enough because we've been told for so long that just singing on a stage and performing revolution is changing lives, which is dangerous and irresponsible. Um, so most of this um, full disclosure is coming from my own hurt because I was very hurt by this group recently and I was hurt by them for the last time, so I'm speaking about it calmly, and I want to be clear that these are my own experiences. Um, I don't know that these are reflective of anyone else's experience, because I can only speak for myself, and I can partially speak for my late mother, because she was intrinsically like interwoven into the threads of the organization for at least 15 years of her life, and by the way, still active in the organization up until the month that she died, so very, very much a part of her story. Um, but that being said, I don't know the details of her private relationships. Um, I can only speak to her as it pertains to my story and our story. <sighs> you can tell by my breathing that this is hard for me to talk about. I have, <laughs> I have a lifetime worth of stories. I have more than um, lifetimes worth of stories. The truth is that I could go on for hours about how growing up as a child actor shaped me. It shaped my professional attitude. Um, it shaped my creativity. It um, allowed me to collaborate and gave me the ability to take direction and take criticism. And in those ways, theater can offer structure and it can offer long-term benefits that are great for children. I cannot and would not ever deny those that, that theater does good things. Um, but that being said, that's just not what I'm going to focus on today because quite honestly, I think theaters tell themselves that enough. They pat themselves on the back enough. Um, and today I need to talk about, today I need to talk about the self-hatred. I need to talk about the lifetime of rejections and the social repercussions that has on me as an adult. Um, the constant triggering of intense emotions when you're in your formative years, learning how to act as a child. I need to talk about um, 
gaslighting and power manipulation from creative directors over their staff, over their kids, over their students. I need to talk about the fear of judgment that still to this day lives so deeply in my core that I can't overcome it. Um, I need to talk about child labor exploitation for the purpose of entertainment, for the purpose of community service, for the purpose of educational opportunity, and of all... <laughs> I just I, I need to talk about all of the unfortunate fates that have bestowed me growing up as a child actor, and all of the misfortunes that might have come my way as a result of being taught that my worth was inherently tied to my talent, and to my castability. Um, whenever you think about child actors, you think about Hollywood. And I think about all the stories of, like, kids getting scammed. You know those radio commercials? Those radio commercials that say, like, um, oh, be a part of Nickelodeon, just come to this open casting call. And then apparently if you go to the open casting call, then they're like, oh, we're going to offer you this slot for our acting classes and they're super expensive um and that's and there's sort of this cycle of taking advantage of parents who want their kids to be stars and taking advantage of kids who want to be the next ariana grande who want to be in my case like the next amanda Bynes. and you don't necessarily think of um school drama clubs you don't think of after-school programs. You don't think of community theaters with um, classes for kids. And that was my experience. So basically, I grew up thinking that my experience as a child actor wasn't intense enough for me to qualify to tell these stories. And I went such a large chunk of my life believing that, well, not believing, but really knowing. I spent a majority of my life knowing that I had traumas and that I didn't remember them. <laughs> I knew that, I knew that something had happened to me that um, formed the intense, there's dogs coming downstairs if there's crazy sounds. I knew that something had formulated in me from a young age that gave me the horrific social anxiety that I have. Um, but I didn't know what it was until I saw a TikTok. <laughs> this won't be the first time that I play a TikTok on my podcast, but um, it certainly won't be the last either. How you doing, buddy? I've showed this to quite a few people. I've posted this on Instagram because I truly feel like this is something that everybody needs to see. Oh my gosh, was it deleted? Oh, it might have been deleted. Oh no, here it is. I really think acting training should be abolished until the entire system can be reframed, and here's why. There's so many different theater techniques that different schools teach, but all of them involve learning how to be extremely vulnerable in front of groups of people and learning how to turn that on and off on a dime. And all of them involve trying to figure out how to dig down deep into your emotions to figure out what is most emotionally activating to you. 
And of course, that's going to have consequences on your everyday relationships. And we were taught how to do this by people who don't have any sort of training in therapy or any ability to actually give you support in how to manage what that brings up for you. We were also told constantly that theater was changing lives and cultivating empathy. And we were being told this without being encouraged to learn about any sort of historical oppression or activism in our local communities. And telling a bunch of 18-year-olds that they're changing lives by playing pretend and performing revolution without teaching them about mutual aid and how to stand up for their community members is irresponsible. There's literally so many things I could say and fucked up things that we did in class, but these are just some starting points. But these are just some starting points, and guess what, my friend? I am expanding on those starting points today. This is a TikTok by XOXO Love Bless, so uh, check them out on TikTok. The first thing that I want to talk about is sort of the culture and the environment that I grew up in in this theater school. Um, I want to say it was very waspy. That's that's a word that um, my boyfriend used. <laughs> and like white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, like well-off, uh, rich folks. Again, this was a private tuition-based after-school program. So this wasn't really in any way serving the community. It was in a well-financed area um, with kids who had, who were at least middle class if not generally upper middle class um so there was already this ongoing theme of classism that um made me feel like i was broken to be completely honest um as i said my mom was a creative and she was a seamstress so uh she worked in exchange for my tuition to this program and while we weren't incredibly poor until my parents divorced when I was in high school. And that's when we went below the poverty line. But prior to that, we were not super well off. I would say we were lower middle class or like upper poverty, if that's a thing. (laughs) Um, So I remember going to kids' houses as early as second grade and seeing, seeing the beautiful places that they lived and seeing how easy their lives were even, because again, I, I had faced my first really dark and difficult trauma. Um, I had faced that at seven years old. So I walked into these people's lives and I saw beautiful houses and beautiful environments and um it made me feel some kind of way. And I know it made my mom feel some kind of way too, because if I wanted to invite friends from Act One over, that was different than if I wanted to invite friends from church over. The friends from church, they lived in our neighborhood, so like they were like kind of fucking broke too. And um <laughs> But if I wanted to invite a friend from my theater school over it was going to be a big deal. <laughs> like we had to have a couple of days to clean to like make things look nice. And even then it was kind of embarrassing that we like lived on a highway and there was just so many elements of trying to um, make it look like we fit into this place that had claimed from the beginning that we were always going to feel that way. Um, and so again, I can't, I can't speak for my mother, but I can speak to her as it pertains to my story. And I know that 
when I wanted to entertain friends from that group, it was super high pressure, super high pressure. Um, And that being said, only a certain demographic came out of this theater school. Again, it's it's waspy. It's white Anglo-Saxon. Like <laughs> it's it's white cisgendered for the most part like well-off students. So whenever we would hear about uh New York City success stories or people who had come out of the program and made a living for themselves as an actor, you know, the people that like get that are like that are like on the front page, right? Um it's like how when you go to Morphe.com, you still see James Charles' big stupid face on Morphe.com. Um, and when you go to a theater school's website, you're going to see the people that they trained with. When you go to a college program, musical theater program's website, you're going to see the biggest stars that have come out of that program. It's just um, because that's that that's your marketing technique. That's how you're going to make it happen. Um, so we were put forward these success stories. And when I say success stories, I don't mean people who were ridiculously famous, because again, that's not the angle that they took. The angle that they took was, no, you are a successful actor as long as you are eating and acting. (laughs) So um, the idea that was highly glamorized within that culture was the idea of a starving artist, and it meant you know, it might be difficult, you might not be able to always get meals, you might not be able to live in the best apartment in New York, but as long as you're performing, nothing else should matter. You'll just be a starving artist. And it was just like kind of this, this intoxicating idea. It feels like, um, it feels like whenever they start a cult, and they're like, hey, come move to this commune, and we're all sustainable. And (laughs) that's what it feels like. It says, oh, well, it, it's not perfect, but this is the right way to do it. This, this is the right thing. <sighs> and um, those success stories, those people on the front of the website, the people that were advertised as the glamorous starving artists we should strive to be, uh, were all attractive, thin, white, heterosexual, cisgendered performers from well-off families that were not starving. They weren't. They weren't struggling. They always had a fallback plan. And I was told by several of <laughs> by several of those success stories to never have a fallback plan because if you have a fallback plan, you will fall back on it. That's what I was told. And I thought, well, these people are making a full-time living these people are making it work and they don't have fallbacks but what I didn't understand is that a fallback didn't just mean a non-theater degree that's what they made it sound like they made it seem like oh you don't want a fallback plan like a degree in business or engineering but they did have fallback plans why because they had rich parents who were well off who would always be there to support them if I could not afford my rent. I would lose my house. I would just lose it. I would have to find somewhere else to live. There's no, I need a loan from my parents. There's no, I need some assistance. There's no, I need a place to stay because I fell flat on my face. And it's really hard 
it's um it's hard to think back at the people who told me not to have a fallback plan and look at all of the systemic advantages that they've been given their entire lives that make it literally impossible for them to ever actually be a starving artist, which by the way, why are we striving for that to begin with? (laughs) And all of these people were untrained, untrained actors teaching children who didn't have mental health or safety training and If you're not familiar with the acting world, (laughs) that TikTok should have given you one little preview into things because the basis of acting training is going down into your deepest, darkest emotions, triggering yourself heavily and turning it on and off for people on a dime. That is what acting training is. I have never received an acting class that said, do not trigger yourself. I have never received advice from a teacher who said, take care of yourself. (laughs) Don't go to the darkest place you can imagine. And there was some wealth inequality there, okay? Because it wasn't wasn't totally necessary for all of the kids. You know, they probably don't have much trauma. They're well off, they're rich, they're hetero, they're cis and they're white. So what could they possibly need in terms of mental health or safety or making sure that we aren't completely taking advantage of a traumatic situation and exploiting it for entertainment purposes, for the purpose of performing, performance and crying on cue or whatever? But I was one of those kids that needed someone who knew what the fuck they were doing. And no one was there. No one was there for me. Because these professionals were just actors that didn't get jobs in New York. (laughs) And if they weren't just actors who didn't get jobs in New York, then they were just creatives who ended up being teachers. They don't have teaching degrees. They don't get background checks. I know because I taught there. They have no perspective of different backgrounds because so many people within the program stay in the program, were trained in the program, remain in the program. There is no curriculum focus on teaching about minorities. There's no curriculum focus about teaching history or uh, historical oppression or civil rights or... um, or uh, BIPOC folks in regards to live theater and how it has developed over time. They, we, how? Tell me how I went through 15 years of theater school and nobody ever taught me what a minstrel show was. Tell me how that happens. How do you go through 15 years of live theater training with a program that breeds professionals that glamorizes starving artists. And you don't learn about the most basic historical oppression 
the, the bare fucking minimum. And as long as we're on racial insensitivity, let's give a second and let's talk about um, racially insensitive content. Let's talk about Once on this Island. Let's talk about Once on this Island. Once on this Island is a show that takes place in Haiti um, <laughs> between the um, white and mixed race folks of Haiti and the uh, black peasants. Um and it is about uh, worshiping the loa of the culture. It's about Haitian voodescence. Um, and it is a story about a uh, poor peasant girl who falls in love with a young white man. And uh, historically, his family is... Um, historically, his family is... Um, taking advantage of and raping their slaves and other black peasants. Uh, so when he falls in love with her, he expects that she knows that she will remain a mistress and never be his wife. Tell me how 60 white kids in high school can tell this story and do it any justice. And I will just, <laughs> I'll just wait for that. I guess. <laughs> I guess if you have an answer, write it in the comments down below, because what the actual fuck? How can we do that? Now, it does specify in the rights to Once on this Island when you get it that you can change some of the lyrics. You have to change them, though. You have to change the lyrics from... Uh, and it changes the idea, basically, from being about race, black and white, to being about the rich and the poor. So tell me again, tell me again how 60 rich, white, Anglo-Saxon, cisgendered, heterosexual kids can tell this story, whether it is about race or inequality. And it is about race, by the way. It's bullshit. It's bullshit that you would make it about inequality. This is a story about black folks in a black country. I it, just so completely ignorant. And I was not told how oppressive this was. I was not told how blind this was. I didn't once think that being in this show was wrong. I didn't think working on this show was wrong. My camera died, so I had to reset and I also probably had to reset just for, for my own sake, my own life. Um, Once on this Island was not the only piece of racially insensitive content that we did and were told was completely normal. Um, uh, we also did uh, The Hot Mikado, which of course is a story about Asian folks, again, with rich, white, Cisgendered, hetero, maybe um, you know what? And I'll and I'll take back what I'm saying. There's plenty of non-hetero folks in that space. Um, but still, white, privileged, cisgendered teenagers performing a story about black oppression, and it's and it's gross. It's really gross because um. I look towards the teachers and the people that I looked up to my entire life through this program, and I see that their eyes are closed to the racial issues, but their eyes are wide open 
when it comes to identifying misbehavior, excuse me, when it comes to identifying misbehavior, when it comes to detecting the slightest bit of noise or mild disruptions, um, I would like to tell a story about when I was in third grade. Um, as far as the racially insensitive shows, I'm talking specifically about high school, although I did also, unfortunately, participate in Once on this Island when I was younger, but that was not a part of this theater school experience. Um, so obviously there's a lot of problems intrinsically in the field, so it's not entirely any one individual's fault. There's just so many problems in the community altogether. Um, but I want to share a story about, I can't remember if it was second or third grade that uh, we were doing um, a show called Honk. It's essentially the ugly duckling. And I was one of the like regular like little ducklings or whatever. And we had rehearsal on Easter Sunday. So uh, again, my mom worked there. So she was there for like the full 12 hour shift on weekends. And, um, I had one of the first rehearsals in the morning. So me and my mom came up there and I went to my rehearsal and we were all sitting in the lobby learning a song and, um, the age group of this, because it was the ducklings, I have to say it was between like second and fourth graders who, and probably 30 of us, like a pretty big group, um, just with one pianist, because again, there were no regulations, so it's not like a daycare. I don't know if you guys know, I worked in a daycare, so whenever you um, whenever you have a certain amount of kids in a room, then you have to increase the number of teachers depending upon the amount of kids who are present. That wasn't the case here because it wasn't regulated. So these are people without teaching degrees, these are people who are not background checked, and um, this is most likely one adult trying to manage between 30 and 130 kids at a time. So obviously we get a little rowdy because we're second through fourth graders. <laughs> and I just remember one of my teachers yelling at me with so, not me, but yelling at our group with so much disgust and hatred, and anger. This was an angry, angry woman who was under immense amount of stress and did not give herself the adequate amount of time to deal with the stress of handling hundreds of kids a day, but instead of taking the right precautions and um, proceeding to move forward and make the program better, um, we were completely screamed at and I remember this particular moment of being scalded for making noise during a class to be so traumatizing that it set off my first ever panic attack <laughs> and I didn't know what a panic attack was I just knew that I was hyperventilating and I needed to get out of that room so bad I I I can go back to that moment and it almost brings tears to my eyes thinking, and I don't remember what was said. I blocked a good, a, I, I, I blocked the specifics of it out, but this was not the only time that I had to deal with adults screaming at me. 
This was not the only time that I watched a teacher actually lose their minds and like go off on us. <laughs> like in a way that I, as an adult, would never even think of acting this way in front of a child. But it was it was regular over there. And let me tell you why. It's because we were being trained to be professional actors. And that's why the problem is not just in the community, it's not just in the industry, but it's in the theater programs, schools, and classes themselves. This relates to high-end schools. This relates to community theater classes. If you are teaching kids, little kids, teach them the joy of the art. You know, teach them the joy and the love of theater and of music and of pretending and of imagination. Because in second grade, I was being taught to be a professional. So I stood quietly in a militant environment. And I was taught to be a people pleaser. I was taught to take criticism no matter what it is. I was taught not to question authority. When I have kids, by the way, I will be teaching them not to blindly respect authority. I think that fucked me up big time. You can't blindly respect authority. You can't blindly respect authority because adults do not always have your best interest in mind. And I do not believe that the adults at this program ever had my best interest in mind. And in fact, there was a point where the students themselves had become such a stickler for these rules, especially if, like me, you had grown up in this program, that by the time we got to high school, we felt entitled. We felt that we were so professional and so much the teacher that we could minimize others and make them feel smaller and make them feel less important because they didn't grow up with the same oppression and abuse that we did and because I had to have a panic attack listening to this woman scream at me and my fellow second graders it meant that when I got into high school then it gave me permission to take the reins on discipline because occasionally those teachers would just refuse to deal with the discipline they didn't want to teach they didn't want to quiet us down they didn't want to deal with the rowdiness of teaching a group of high schoolers a group of teenagers so because some of us had been bred from the beginning to be militant and compliant and quiet we took it upon ourselves to continue the cycle of yelling and screaming and scaring students. I'm so ashamed of some of the... I'm so ashamed of some of the things that I did when I was there. I know that I continued so many oppressive cycles. I know that I preached the same things that they did about safety and forgiveness or I don't I don't even know but it feels like a cult <laughs> honestly if big time just feels like like I went my whole life believing something and then I look back on it and I was like oh wait that was actually all super super fucked up 
I mean, I even go back to the earliest memories. We had a tradition in class that at the end of class, we we would hug everyone. Or we would hug like a certain amount of people or whatever. And sometimes, obviously, you don't want to hug all the time. And you have a right to your bodily autonomy and you don't have to touch people when you don't want to. But when you're raised in an environment that teaches you to be a people pleaser, to make everybody happy, to not make waves, to not stand up for yourself, to not make noise, and to not stand out unless it's in regards to your castability and your talent, then you fall into this cycle that they want you to fall into, whatever it is. Um, So there is no saying I would like to... Um, not hug anybody today at the end of rehearsal. You simply had to find a way to be, um, I guess, more maliciously compliant. So I know that some of the kids, we would like, we would like put our arms around each other and then we would just like count really fast and that would like count as all your hugs for the rehearsal. (laughs) Because you knew that if you didn't do it, that made you an asshole. It made you stand out. It made, and you didn't you didn't want to be that person. The only time you were allowed to stand out in an environment like that, the only time you're allowed to stand out is if it's in regards to your casting or if it's your audition or if you're standing out in the right way because you don't want to be known as the person who makes waves because that makes you less castable than the next person. And in theater everybody is replaceable. If you can't do it, or if you're not going to do it well enough, or if you're not going to do it and suck my dick at the same time, which which is probably a little vulgar to say, but honestly, like, if you're not going to do it in the way that is the most pleasing to the authorities who are in charge, then you are replaceable. Everyone is replaceable. Doesn't, who said that? Abby from Dance Moms. Abby from Dance Moms used to say that everyone's replaceable. And I used to think that was so fucked up. I'm like, I just can't believe like, oh, that's just like nothing like the experience that I had when I was dancing and performing growing up. But it was. It was. But the difference is we didn't have a camera crew there to protect us and call out our abusers on their harmful behavior. We didn't have anybody there to enforce state regulations that are there for a reason that say we need a certain amount of adults per certain amount of kids that we need mental health professionals on site because you're doing intense scene work, triggering kids on purpose, telling them to cry for scenes in summer intensives. I, (laughs) there's no safety precautions. There's no one advocating for kids in this arena. There's no one advocating for kids in this space. And I'm here to tell you that it fucked me up. And I have so, so, so many more stories to tell, especially in regards to my lens as a sex educator about consent in theater spaces. Dear God. Um, Being pushed beyond your limits in theater spaces. Um, misguided trust activities. Um, There is this huge 
theme within the theater community of like having to build trust and love with your cast. And then it's just immediately ripped away from you every time a show is over and you never get to see that group of people again. But you've been spending so long, like purposely, like trying to bond with them and being told that you're changing the world with them and being told that, you know, everything that we are doing is creating a better space and creating a better community and a better environment because we're sitting around and pretending, but it's just not true because nobody told me about mutual aid. Nobody taught me about how I can fight for BIPOC folks in the space. There was not a, I'm not going to say there's not a single BIPOC person in that program, but I was, I, there was not many. (laughs) It's like it's like that school that you might grow up in in the Midwest where like, oh, and there was only one black kid in my entire school. That that's what it was like. And yet we were tackling content that was challenging and we were I I don't know. We we weren't learning about the history, but we were triggering ourselves and they were triggering us and then we it was such a militant environment and I have obviously a lot to say about it. (laughs) I have a lot to say about it, but this is just an overview of, this is just an overview of what my experience was like growing up as a child actor. And um, if you've been listening to the podcast for any amount of time, and I know I haven't uploaded in a while, but it's because I've been dealing with a depressive episode and then also dealing with uncovering the traumas from this piece of my life, which is brand new, like maybe a week ago, I made this discovery. And by the way, it was a week ago that I made this discovery because it was because I was um, incredibly hurt by the people who were there, despite having grown up in the program for 15 years and my mom working there. And uh, they still managed to totally fucking break my heart. And it really first it made me question things, but I'm glad it did. Because in my mind, I said, oh, I always thought that this acting program was different than the community theater scene in Cleveland. You know, I thought, okay, the community theater scene in Cleveland, like, it's kind of dramatic. It's like a little fucked up. But like, you know, we're all adults. So, you know, we leave the show, we don't stay in touch. And it's fine. I, I, I was I was willing to accept that Um, the nature of this theater community was a little more touch and go and a little less um, tugging on the heartstrings like I was used to with the theater program I grew up in. Um, But when I was hurt by those people, and this was not the first time, but it will be the last time, when I was hurt by this group of people, um, I realized that it's, it's an industry issue. It's an industry issue because we are not prioritizing self-care. We are not prioritizing consent. We are not prioritizing civil rights. We are, and we are certainly not an equitable industry. Um, We talked about equity at the beginning of Black History Month. Um... And, you know, even on that note, there's no equality in the industry either. I've, I've been talking quite a bit in my classes about how um, genderqueer folks and 
uh, folks of different sexualities have no place in theater. They are often completely disregarded because if you're performing a show, then you automatically assume characters are cis unless it's explicitly stated otherwise, which is fucked up. And likewise, we assume that a lot of roles are white, thin, privileged people. (laughs) White, hot, thin people. (laughs) Simply because it doesn't say otherwise. And I, I think that there's a lot to learn in this industry. There is so, so much room for growth. But I have to say that the most passionate I have ever been about something is protecting the children of this industry. I am an adult who went through it. And I live with so many issues now. I live with so many things every day. I live with anxieties. I live with a life of sexual repression. I um, I have so many inherent biases. I have a selfishness instilled in me. I am aggressive and a go-getter in all the worst ways. <laughs> Um, I'm certainly a perfectionist in the worst way. I am absolutely terrified of almost every social interaction that I have to have on a day-to-day basis. And I'm telling you right now, this is the result of growing up as a child actor in an environment that did not preach equity, that did not... It didn't do what it said it was going to do. Growing up in an environment that um, claims that they are revolutionary, that claims that they are life-changing, that claims that they are building up a community and making it a better place. And it's so weird to think that it wasn't what I thought it was. It's so weird. It's so weird. And I have a lot more specific stories that I do plan on sharing once I have a little bit more of a concise idea of how this relates to unacceptable behavior and how this relates to um, sexuality education and social anxiety and Overall mental health repercussions. I for sure (laughs) am partially fucked up because of how many times I was purposely triggered for someone else's entertainment. And no matter how you spin it, When you put it like that, that there's this eight-year-old girl who just went through a horrific trauma 
the family death of a toddler. And now she goes to class twice a week and triggers the most intense feelings she possibly can. And it might feel good. (laughs) It might feel like it's therapy. But performing is not therapy. And if you do not have a mental health professional by your side, if you don't have somebody who is trained with safety precautions, if you don't have any sort of qualification or experience with helping kids deal with what that brings up for them, then fuck you. Fuck you. It's irresponsible. And it's dangerous. And somebody needs to hold these teachers accountable. Somebody needs to hold these people accountable. Every piece of my being does not want to publish this. I don't know. Maybe I'll record it again. Maybe I'll start over. I don't know. Every piece of my being wants me to not publish this because it doesn't have enough to do with sex education and it um, is not reflective of... (laughs) Well, no, my brain is telling me it's not reflective of the type of professional you want to be. But... I think it is reflective of the type of professional I want to be because I want to be somebody who stands up for kids because I wish that somebody had stood up for me. I wish that somebody would have told me that this wasn't as perfect and faultless and glamorous as it appeared on the surface. But within the theater community, the only people who surround you are others in the theater community. And everyone in the theater community just likes to jack each other's cocks all day long. They don't want to take accountability for their own actions, and therefore they do not hold others accountable. You see this issue a lot in community theaters, people casting themselves, people casting them for their friends. And nobody is going to call anybody out on it because they all do the same thing. <laughs> But it's different whenever you are talking about the formative years of a child's life and putting them through situations that are dangerous, putting them in situations that blur the line of consent, putting them in situations that, um, putting them in situations that lead them to believe that they can't trust anyone. (laughs) And it's all just about getting apart (laughs) and it's all just about getting to perform on a stage and that's the sickest the sickest part is because we're doing this for pleasure for me performing is pleasure i think of them in the same category (laughs) um pleasurable activities people like to put on hand cream take long baths get a massage 
These are things that like make you feel pleasure. Obviously, we like to orgasm. We like to masturbate. We like to be intimate with ourselves and have, you know, have these beautiful experiences that lead us to this amazing sensation of pleasure. Pleasure is different than happiness. Pleasure is, you know, a step higher. It, it can be a beautiful thing. And I'm telling you right now that nothing gives me more pleasure than standing on a stage and performing which wouldn't be a problem. It really wouldn't. I could easily stand on a stage and perform. But instead, I was a child and I went through hell. And I thought that crawling through that hell was a necessity to get to the other end. I thought the pain was necessary to reach the pleasure i mean just think about the the repercussions of that right i mean imagine your most pleasurable activity let's just say it's masturbating let's say you just love masturbating (laughs) which who doesn't but imagine that every time you had to masturbate, you had to jump through a ring of fire first. And it becomes so much a part of your routine that you don't even think about getting burned anymore. You're so excited to get to the pleasure part that the path you take to get there no longer matters. Everything around you is blurred when you want to achieve that feeling so bad. So my entire experience taking classes and being scolded and being yelled at and (laughs) um, it was all blurry because I thought that's what I had to do to do the one thing that I knew was going to be pleasurable to me. And it's not necessary. (laughs) I'm learning that now. I'm learning now that you don't have to jump through a ring of fire. You don't have to get burnt every time. But I'm looking at this document just like, and and it's a list approximately this long. About 10 full swipes. (laughs) I don't know if you could hear that. You probably only hear the dogs. But it's a long list. It's a long list of stories and things that I can... Hi, buddy. And things that I can relate back to, um, to my sexuality education and my mental health journey. I'm trying to decide if I want to talk about it now or if I'm just going to leave this as a <laughs> if I'm just going to leave this as like a hey gear up for what I'm about to talk about. <sighs> Cuz it's weird. It's weird because I want so badly to talk about it and to tell my stories and to expose what I know, but at the same time I can't think of anything more exhausting than going through this itemized list and talking about all of the fucked up stuff that happened to me in theater class. 
I might not be talking about sex ed directly, but I'm certainly talking about unacceptable behavior. This is unacceptable behavior. Not the podcast. This... What happened? That's unacceptable behavior. And that's what I want to talk about on here. So I'm going to say that this is right on theme. (laughs) Thank you for listening. Um, No ad on today's podcast because fuck that. Um, There is... More coming from me in the future, if you're interested about uh, talking about the industry and (laughs) other unacceptable behaviors. (laughs) My name's Braylon A. (laughs) It feels like such a stupid sign-off. But really, thank you guys for listening to my story. I promise that um, I'll have some more specific anecdotes and stories for you in the future. And I promise this time I will see you next week. Bye, guys.